Well, my name is Jeffrey Cranford, and I am uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the Red Door, and uh, we have, uh, haven't seen each other for, since last year, and uh, we're just so happy that uh, you're, you're here with us. 2018, I'm telling you, I am telling you, 2018 is going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year in the life of this church. And it's going to be a great year if you are a follower of Jesus. It's going to be a great year in your life. That doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. But it means it's going to be a great year. Every year in Christ is a progressive, powerful, transformative year in Jesus. And with that, we can all be confident. Look, I know, I know many of you. And I know some of the trials that you endured in 2017. And that's what we started talking about last week. We started talking about this issue of the timing of God and the seasons in our lives. And I'll tell you right now, last week we made some very clear and definitive remarks based in Scripture, based in the prophet Jeremiah, for instance. I have plans for you, plans for your welfare, not your calamity. First of all, foundationally, and this is, this. let me tell you something, this is transformative. You know, many people come to church, but they never really buy into the idea that God has a very specific and calculated plan that was put in place before the foundations of the earth for your life. And that stands in dramatic contrast to the secular notion that you're just, everything's just kind of random and you just kind of go for it and, and things might befall you. And let me just tell you something, that's dissettling, that's disquieting. I mean, tell you, that, that not realizing that there's a God that's in control and that he has control of your circumstances, even when it appears that he doesn't, just the understanding of a plan is, is transformative. It brings peace, peace beyond our even ability to understand it, knowing that God's plan is going to work. I just have to stay on the proverbial potter's wheel and not jump off. Stay on there as he conforms you into his image and prepares you for a season that may be coming in your life and inevitably will be coming. So there is a plan. God is preparing you for that plan. And ultimately that plan will end in growing his kingdom and making you become more like Jesus. Now if you have that as a deep construct in your very bones, then it doesn't matter what comes your way. I'm telling you, you can endure it. You can make it through, regardless of what you may be going through right now, if you understand that this too, this season in your life is a preparatory season. And yes, there's always a culminating season in everybody's life. We don't like to talk about it, but we're going to look at it this morning. Eventually, there is a pointed time for all of us to die, and not all of the disciples live to the ripe old age of 100 or even 90. Stephen, as we've seen many times, the first Christian martyr, we don't know how old he was, but chances are he was a pretty young guy. And he was stoned, and that was God's appointed time for him, as we will see. So timing is everything, and in God's economy, you can understand and know that God's timing is perfect. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't know about that. You have no idea what I've been going through or how long I've been praying for this particular situation. I question whether or not God's timing is perfect. Well, we're going to go deep into the scriptures. Now, before we do, I need to lay just a little bit of a ground, a little bit of groundwork for what it is 
to be in God's waiting room. Because part of being in God's timing very often are being in seasons of waiting. Waiting to get out of it because we don't like the season that we're in. But usually preparation is tough. It doesn't matter. We can, we can make all the sports metaphors if you want. But the hard work, the laborious, you know, pumping weights if you're a football player, banging balls if you're a golfer or whatever, or an endurance athlete, you know, just the miles that you've got to track. None of that's fun, but we know intuitively that there's preparation for a season of execution. That's what we talked about last week. And if you never think of your life as being a life of execution, meaning that God in some way is going to use you to execute his plans, then you won't ever wait patiently through seasons of preparation. Listen to a couple, just a few of the verses about waiting, and, and I, these, won't, these won't come up behind me. I just want you to think, Psalm 37, I was thinking about this morning, Psalm 37, verse 7 and 8. Just essentially, wait patiently on the Lord. And then a few verses down, and don't fret about this. Just wait and don't freak out. That's the modern-day vernacular for fretting. Just don't freak out like the disciples did when Jesus told them to get in the boat and go to the other side in Matthew chapter 8. And they did, and a storm hit. You don't think Jesus knew about the storm? And he was sleeping. He knew he knew that God had a plan in his life, for his life. He had submitted himself fully, Jesus did, to that plan. And he knew now was not the time. And his disciples should have known that as well. In other words, even though Jesus didn't say it, why are you guys, he said, why are you guys freaking out? Why are you of so little faith? Don't you realize there's a plan here? Do you think we're going to go down in the middle, the middle of a lake in northern Israel just because of a storm? Do you really think that? Is that part of the way you think about God, that we're just random and that maybe God's on vacation or texting somebody? I mean, God is on it. O oh, you of little faith. Lamentations 3, verse 25. The Lord is good to those, now catch this, who wait and seek him. Now think about that. That's a little bit of an if-then st statement for those of you who were early programmers in the old Macintosh days where you actually did your programming. An if-then statement. If this is true, then, and then it goes on to the next link. But let me tell you something. The Lord is good to those if you're waiting and seeking. He's going to be good to you. Now, from our perspective, it may not always seem good, but it's good. All things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In other words, who have a calling because God has a plan who've been called to execute some plan, some task in the kingdom of God on earth. And obviously many of us have various tasks that are given to us and there are cycles and seasons of tasks. What task has God given you today or in this season to execute on? If you do that properly and you succeed in the task that you're given in this season, then you'll move to the next season and you'll probably be given a larger task. A lot of people don't understand that. Jesus was clear, though. If you've been faithful in the little that I've given to you, you're going to be given more. Jesus was so clear. So there are cycles, and there's a crescendo that it just begins to rise to a level, and then at some point in the future, you really walk into may, maybe what your ultimate calling is. It's none of, but all these seasons are radically important for you to fulfill. Lives are at stake. 
Your children's lives are at stake. Your grandkids' lives are at stake. Your friends at school, their, their lives are at stake. They really are at times. You walking in and understanding the times and the seasons, has, it has impact and import on people in your life that God's put around you. And then lastly, Psalm 119, 147, I rise before the dawn and I cry for help and I wait, I wait for your words. You know, I talked a little bit last week, we talked about, you know, I set my alarm and I did at 11.55, I woke up, I got, went into my office, I got down on my face, I turned on some worship music and I, Lord, I need your word for 2018. I give you 2018. I'm asking you to take it, Lord. Take 2018. That's, that's what I'm asking you to, to do. And am I perfect in that? No, but I'm, it's become part of my ritual, not only on the first of the year, as right as we turn the clock at midnight, but it's becoming more and more through the last number of years that I realize I am truly, utterly, utterly dependent upon Jesus and his direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I have to understand the times that I am living in. I have to understand the seasons, again, on an individual basis, for my family, for the life of this church, for our nation. For I mean, there are a lot of different things. So as we apply now, as we go to Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to apply and begin to break some of this down. Now, let me just tell you something. This is great poetic language, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for, there's a time for, there's a time for. That's true, but if we break this down and understand the biblical narrative and how all of this fits back into the l- larger construct, both individually, as a nation, etc., we will be much more adept at walking through life with intention rather than just getting beat around by circumstances and always then turning and questioning God, never really having ultimately the kind of peace that God desired to give us through Jesus. Jesus said that, my peace I am leaving with you. Do you remember when he told the disciples that? The peace that I have, I've been teaching you 12 for the last three, three and a half years on these dusty roads out in the middle of kind of nowhere at times as we navigated our way back and forth between the north and the south and to Jerusalem and for festivals and Passovers and things like that. And I have been instructing you, you've watched me do life. And now because, that you, because of that and what you've seen, I'm going to leave that with you, that teaching, that word, and it comes with it, comes my peace. So look, if you're not walking in peace, and I'm not asking you if you're walking in perfect circumstances. Nobody is. Everybody's got something going on. Everybody. But I'm asking you if you're walking in peace. Peace is one of the beautiful byproducts of walking intimately with Jesus. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, well, let's pull up the whole thing, guys, uh, verse 1 through 8, and let's just start working our way through this, okay? Are you ready? Let's look at this. There is an appointed time for everything, all right? You got that? In other words, there's a plan. It's not random. It's not chaotic. The cosmos itself is on an exact clock working according to law. 
physical laws and spiritual laws. They are working on a clock. There is an appointed time, and as a result, you, just like the stars and Kepler's laws and everything else that keeps everything in orbit and how everything works down to the microsecond, so it is in your life. There are appointed times and seasons. So there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Next verse. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Next verse. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep. A time to laugh. A time to mourn. And a time to dance. I'll save you from my dancing today. A time to throw stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. And then as we, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, and then finally, a time to love and a time to hate. We'll work through that, don't worry. A, a time for war and a time for peace. In other words, there is an appointed time for everything under the sun. Do you know what season you are in? Are you in an uprooting season right now? Are you in a sew together season right now? Are you in a time of war right now? Or is there a time of peace? Is it a time of laughter in your life? Or is there a time of mourning? Or might there be, in some ways, crossover in various compartments of your life, fragments of these in various ways? So I could shift your thinking right now. You may have just come out of that last worship song and be energized by the very worship of God himself. And you, he may, you may be brought into his, into his really presence through that song. And then I can shift through a different conversation and maybe start to talk about many of you who have children that don't know Jesus. And your emotions would shift and, your time, and you would realize there's a season as it relates with your kids. And then there's a season that, and you can't get, so you see what I'm saying. There are crossovers in terms of seasonality in different compartments in our life. So let's begin to go to each one of these and break these down and examine. And I'm just going to give you, look, let me just tell you, there is nothing comprehensive about what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some examples both in the life of Jesus, in the life of the nation of Israel, and in the life individually that would apply to us. Now, all of these can apply to you, but I don't want you to only think of these in terms of your individual application. I want you to think both broadly and narrowly. Think, think in very diverse terms as we go through these, and I'll explain more as we go along. So number one, a time to give birth. Now, let's think of it broadly. Well, mankind was birthed with Adam and Eve. God breathed his spirit into these two in the garden, and they became living beings in the likeness and the image of God. That was the birthing of these these special animals, now we're not animals, but get the picture here, mankind that distinguished itself from the animals, now having the very breath of God breathed into them and them becoming what? 
in the very image of God. We, we can image and reflect God's nature, unlike the rest of the animal kingdom. So there was a birthing of mankind. There was a birthing of a nation. With Genesis chapter 12, you get this promise called the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in your seed... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And this was the beginning of the formation of the nation of Israel who would ultimately bring in the Messiah. And that was a birthing as well. There was the birthing of the Messiah. Clearly, and that's what we celebrated a few weeks ago for Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And so God was birthed into a different realm, a seen realm, our experience, and took on human flesh, and then finally, our new birth. There's a time to give birth. If you've never embraced Jesus as your Messiah, as the radical representation of God who died for you and then was raised to redeem you and make everything cool with God again, then you need to experience that real radical new birth. Jesus called it being born again. I didn't make up that. The, the religious right didn't make up that, and you know all the other stereotypes you may have. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. So you have to be born into, birthed into, being able to see this dimension that the rest of the world can't see because they are blinded to the things of God. So that new birth is very important. Would you agree? So Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem us, those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So at the exact right time, Jesus was sensitive to time during his ministry and his life. Do you remember the very first miracle done at Cana? where the water was turned into wine and his mother, Mary, just, you know, just do whatever he tells you to do. And she was kind of forcing him into it, it appeared. And then he says, woman, my time has not yet come. Referencing his, whether it was his public ministry, obviously he began his, in some ways his ministry there because he did this miracle or he was speaking ahead to his ultimate death on behalf of the world to reconcile them to God. But notice, woman, my time has not yet come. Jesus was very sensitive to the time and the seasons in his life. Now, that's important to understand. If that gave Jesus peace, and I, that's my supposition here, if that gave Jesus peace, would you, and understanding the times in your life, would that give you peace? And would that be the peace that Jesus said he was going to leave us, his kind of peace? I knew and yet he knew his life was going to be full of turmoil. He even told us that through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. But there was a perfect time. John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What I alluded to in a conversation Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Birth, there is a time to give birth. But, as we see in the second part, there is also a time to die. There is a time to die. Now, let's just get over it, all right? Can we just leave this is an elephant in the room? Let's gonna, we're all going to die. I don't know if you're aware of that. Unless Jesus comes back in your lifetime, 
you're going to die. Now, what we don't know about this is that some people are constantly freaking out, fretting, because they're terrified of death, not knowing that the Bible gives us there is a plan. There is a plan in your life. And yes, the plan includes you, your death. Let's get over it. How can you have ultimately a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of gospel that some people preach and not, and then add, and oh, by the way, there's a plan for your life. You're going to die one day. And that is part of the plan. Let's look at some of these scriptures just to give you background and understand. Can, are we thinking biblically? You know, one of uh, our pastors and our, and our teachers in here and all the people that are involved in church at the Red Door, our task is to help you think biblically, to think like God thinks. Because the way we think is not the way God thinks, so that's why we do. That's why I'm so committed to Bible studies and teaching and preparation and all those kinds of things, because we have to think biblically. How are we going to be an effective community if we don't think like God thinks about things? Relax. Yes, you're going to die, but it's okay. It's okay. Job 14, verse 5. Catch this. His, and he's referencing just mankind's, days are determined. The number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass these limits. I'm pretty, pretty specific about my diet. I'll just be honest with you. And sometimes, and my wife may even be worse because she's like vegetarian and like vegan, but not has a little bit of ch- anyway. I won't get into it. It's it's kind of sad, and it's it's a burden. It's a burden for my kids. I know it is. And and my oldest, the Zeezers, uh, she's adopting that a little bit. And then I say, man, that's maybe it's overboard a little. I don't know. But can I add a day? No. My point is, I'd like to be feel good until I get to that day. I guess that's the point. I would like to be like the rest of the Californians, be so healthy that one day I just die of nothing. So I don't know how that works, but, you know, that, that would be a goal. So uh, we, we, we're pretty sensitive to diet and thinking, and, yeah, it gets a little bit overboard. But I do recognize that there's not one thing that I can do to extend the appointed days of my life. And I know this gets complicated. Be saying, well, then you can be a fatalist and you can just go run around and, you know, devil make hair with your life and just, you know, you're saved. And then you, I'm going to go out and jump off mountains and jump off mountains and I make no volitional decisions that impact the rest of my life. I know it's complicated. The sovereignty of God and the free will of men. And I admit, I, as hard as I have worked on this theologically for multiple decades, I cannot quite always see, and there's a little bit of a gray area there, that I go, yeah, I know I'm making decisions that are having impact, but I know ultimately God is sovereign. So you say, well, answer that question for us. I can't, but I do hold to both. I do believe and know, because the Scripture says it, that God is sovereign. And I do know that I make choices that impact the future. And I can give you some little semantic type things that work with words, but in the end, I, I don't know. I just do recognize I'm making decisions that have impact, but yet God is sovereign too. So I just rest in the tension. It's okay. It's okay to rest in that tension. Psalm 139, verse 16. I don't know how it can be much more clear than this. In thy book they were written. The days were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them, even before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. God had already ordained your days on earth. So relax. 
You want the peace of God? Understand there are times and seasons, and there will come a season when God takes you to be with him. If you can rest in that and just go, okay, it's going to happen, and it's in, God's, it's in God's hands. Can't you see that there's a beauty in that? Can't you see that that kind of peace is what the world so anxiously awaits? I've got friends who don't know Jesus, and they're hypochondriacs. They're terrified at any cough. They're just, you know, it's just, it's just, it's unending. They're, you know, the security, and what if somebody kills me, and, and all these kind of things. And this always comes up when we decide to take a trip to Israel, which we're discussing and trying to get that on the, on the agenda, and we'll announce that to you when we get it all finalized. But people are always saying, Middle East? I would never go to the Middle East. Too dangerous over there. I'm saying, is there anything, is there any place on earth, if God calls you to go somewhere, if he calls you to go to Pakistan, there is no, there's nothing that can take your life one day earlier than that. Go share the gospel in Afghanistan or Iraq or or somewhere like that. And I know people who do, who go into those areas with the, with the message of Jesus. No, too dangerous. Nothing, catch this, nothing is too dangerous for you. Because your days are numbered. Nothing's too dangerous for you. The only thing dangerous is not recognizing that God is sovereign. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to your, your peace and your spiritual walk with him. Now, next, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. We're going to have a lot of scripture here. Look, this I don't want to just come up here and just, just Jeff has some nice ideas and he kind of gets us pumped up. It's the word that transforms us. It's the word. And God sent forth his word. Psalm 107, 20. God sent forth his word and healed them. Your mind can be healed when you understand the timings and the seasons of God. It can. Because cool, when people aren't at peace, it causes physical problems. So sometimes we think that God, everything needs to be a miraculous healing where I was sick and, or I grew a limb out or something. Most of the time, the healing that play, takes place in the economy of God is that we eat his word every day. It becomes part of us. We get more peace, and then that settles our body, and that's what you know, doctors are telling us every day. Look, if, you're, if there's stress and turmoil and, and things in your life, you're going to be diseased. You're not going to be at ease. That's what disease, disease means. You're just not at ease. You're at a dis-ease. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This is about your old life. There's a time for your old life to die. And all this is in season. God will do this. He won't dump everything on you at the same time. Symbolically, we get baptized to show that we're ridding ourselves of our old life and we're coming up a new transformed person and in God's economy that's exactly what happens but then there's a lifetime of sanctification we are gonna if you've never been baptized would you just get baptized I mean can we just be friends here I love you I, I want I, just get baptized you've never been baptized well I got sprinkled a lot of it but come on just get dunked even if you've been baptized maybe you want to get rebaptized just to make sure I'm kidding that's a Baptist joke but uh <laughs> I'm sorry this is part of the deal uh look get baptized what, January 25th I think that's a Thursday evening. We're going to have a baptism. We'll send out information. I know some of you are already getting baptized. We're going we're gonna to do it uh, in La Quinta. So if you want to get baptized, if you've not been baptized, be baptized. I'll baptize you. Be, be a privilege. And some of you I will hold under longer than others. So <laughs> now catch this. 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. That we might what? 
die to sin and live to righteousness. Look, there are always seasons in my life. I, I've mentioned this to some men before. Uh, the, the more mature the believer, they always will tell you, well, what is God working on your life, working on in your life currently? And it seems like mature believers will always be, they'll have something that God's working on in them. In other words, there's an awareness. There's an introspective awareness that the Holy Spirit is dealing with them in a certain area and they're trying to become more like Jesus in this area because they've seen the deficit because of the glory of the Holy Spirit making it available to them as they read the word. And that ignites in their heart and they're going, ah, things aren't exactly what they should be. Well, let me just tell you, we have to die. And the Lord in his graciousness will allow us to do that as we read the word. And then ultimately he can also, as we'll see a little bit later, bring circumstances into our life that bring death into our lives. Death to areas that will hurt you. Romans 8, verse 13 and 14. Look, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. What season of death are you going through right now? Is there a season of death in you? Like, I always just really wanted this, and now the Lord... It's a season of death for me. Can I just tell you, that's a loving season in God's economy. If he's bringing something to death, putting something to death in your life... And we may fight against it, but if you can all of a sudden rise and go, wait a minute, this may be a time and a season where the Lord is taking something away from me that I always maybe saw as my primary identity or something, and I'm not able to rest in peace because I'm so... You see, you see what I'm saying? There's always, there's a time to die. There just is. He says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death, and that's why it's an ongoing process, the deeds of the body, you're going to live. We want that. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Spirit is leading the process. Don't be like a monastic kind of guy in the old. They try to get all the, 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 the adulterous thoughts out of their minds or the impure thoughts, and they would go into a cave or they would climb up on a pole and live on a pole. And this, These ascetic practices just don't work. Fleeing temptation works when guided by the Holy Spirit, but leaving and going off and being by yourself and living in a hole for the rest of your life doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Partner with the Holy Spirit. Be aware of the times and seasons of the death process in your life and then just go along with it. As I alluded to earlier, stay on the potter's wheel. Don't jump off. He's conforming you. Don't abandon ship. God's in it. This season will end. This season will end. Next, there's a time to plant. And there's a time to uproot what is planted. When I think about planting, I immediately think always of Mark chapter 4. And the sower went out to sow. This could be applied across, like I said, I'm not, there's no way I can be comprehensive here. But there is a time to plant, both for you to plant in other people's lives and for the word to be planted in your life, ultimately with the purpose, from God's perspective, of bearing fruit. John chapter 15, Jesus said, your heavenly Father desires that you bear much fruit fruit. So are you in a season where God is planting something in you, his word? Maybe you've never really opened the Bible before. You say, I don't know if I believe all that stuff. I, you know, can't believe all those right-wing evangelical Christians out there. They, they have all their myth-driven stuff and all that. I, I don't really buy into all that. But now all of a sudden, your curiosity has been piqued, maybe just because you come here to Church of the Red Door, and you're actually opening the Bible for the first time, maybe. And God's planting his word in you. Well, there's a season for that. 
And there is an ongoing season for most of us. I mean, I still get up without trying to think about preparing. Just read the Bible. You know, it's just not that complicated. Just read the Bible. There's a time to plant. But there is a time to uproot what is planted. I want to I show you something that Jesus said in the economy of God as it related to the people of Israel. Now, this is kind of harsh, but listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 12 and 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you talking like this to them? Did Jesus love the disciples? Yes. Did he love the Pharisees? Yes, he loved the Pharisees. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Now, he was talking ultimately about the control of the uh, understanding of the promise to Abraham was in the hands of those who now had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And there was coming a day when there would be an uprooting of the religious lead among the Jewish people. It would transfer from those who were in to the, not still the Jewish people, because it was the Jewish people who wrote the New Testament. The early church was all Jewish until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and maybe Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, depending on how you look at that, but it was all them, and it had transferred, the power center had transferred from a domineering kind of overlording kind of a position, it had been transferred to a service-based part of that, and so therefore God needed to choose through Jesus the humble, those who would have no ability to brag, so that's why he picks tax collectors and fishermen and the very low levels of society to now take and entrust the message to, and that's what you get in Acts chapter 13, Paul, referring back to Isaiah, a light to the nations, he said, that's our task, referring to the believing Jewish community, is to be a light unto the nations. It was always our task. But there had to be a shift of power, and in shifting power, there is always an uprooting that becomes necessary. You know, when God finally calls you to execute on the plan that you have submitted yourself to preparing for, there may be someone that gets uprooted in front of you. Now, that may be because they've gotten older and they, they ran the race well, but it also may mean that somebody has not lived up unto the calling that they have. And so usually when you plant something, you uproot something else first. So God weeds the garden before he plants you. There is a time to plant, and there is a time for God's uprooting. Do you see that? And we could, we could look across that across multiple, in multiple ways through the Scripture, planting, uprooting, planting, uprooting, always with the slow but progressive beauty of God's kingdom advancing, 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 and people being transformed by Jesus. Next, there is a time to kill. And there's a time to heal. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, there's no better place to understand that there was a time to kill. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. God killed his own son at the exact right time. Does that blow your mind? Live streamers, does that blow your mind? I mean, 
How, how, do, you even, how do you even deal with that? There was an appointed time for Jesus to die. And at the exact right time, his life was taken. And yet, as he told Pilate, you only are able to do this because I'm giving my life up. It was Jesus' choice. That boggles my mind. It really does. But there was an appointed time. And there's a time to heal. Now, and by the way, we could apply, again, we could apply this killing to dying. Obviously, dying and killing is a time to die, a time. But this, this time to, to, to kill, there's a lot of times, usually there's always a season in my life where I'm having to kill something in my life that wants to take a stranglehold of me and pull me back down into a worldly view of life and just live for myself. And so Paul used this kind of language in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are destroying speculations and philosophies and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we are demolishing, we're killing, we're killing these thoughts, both first in our head, in the lives of our, our family, and then in our community, we are engaged in war, not literal war, not hand-to-hand -hand combat, but we are engaged in killing things that kill people. Philosophies that will keep people captive and eventually have to spend eternity separated from their loving creator. It's worth killing that. But we lay down our lives. As we kill the philosophy, we lay down our lives. We don't kill the people. We love the people. Does that make sense? So there is a time to kill. Is there a time to heal? Well, Revelation 22, and I, I, there are many places we could deal. Of course, the Lord, the whole purpose of this, God sent his word and healed them. I mean, so there's always a healing going on. But in the end, can I just take you all the way to the end of the story, the end of the narrative when Jesus comes back and he sets up everything as it should be and he will. Let me just tell you something with great confidence. You can have great confidence that Jesus is coming back. That he's going to set up his kingdom. And here we have this, this tree and the leaves were for the healing of the nations. Is what we get in Revelation chapter 22. There's a time to heal. And there is a time. And when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be healed. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. The child is going to, the nursing child is going to be able to play by the cobra's den. I mean, everything's going to be set right. There's going to be no more tooth and fang kind of a, uh, the red stuff, that just the evolutionary stuff and all that and, and all the different things that you look out into wildlife and lambs and animals eating each other and people killing one another. There is a time when everything's going to be set right. And a tree's going to be growing right in the middle of it and it, the leaves, whether figuratively or literally, are going to be healing for the nation nations can't wait and we should be living for that moment now are you living for that moment now if you're living for that moment then you'll say there's a plan for me and I play a role in the execution of this plan and what season am I in am I preparing to execute or am I in a season and execute you see what I'm saying if you really are living for that day then this whole life becomes a life of great excitement great excitement there's a time to tear down there is a time to tear down. I'm going to use 
Again, this was, again, the destiny of a nation, Matthew 24, is they were looking at this incredible, you know, these temple, and, and the disciples were just ooing and aahing over this. And then Jesus turns around and says, he said to them, do you not see all these things? Talking about the, these grand temple. And the Herod had come in, by the way, prior to the birth of Jesus. Herod had come in and built this amazing temple. Uh, they reconstructed the temple after the Babylonian captivity, but then Herod came in and put his stamp on it. And it was amazing, and they were just in awe of it. He said, do you see all these things? He says, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. There is a day when God tears things down. What's he tearing down in your life? Maybe what's he tearing down now in the life of, lives of your family? What's he tearing down? I, I can tell you he's tearing down some things in our nation right now. But he always is. This is nothing new. Don't fret like the nations do. The nations will always be in an uproar. Always. And then there's also an appointed tearing down with his people. And on your individual walk with Jesus. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to tell you a couple stories. And then we're going to wind this thing down. Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and they said, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, let me tell you something, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, let me ask you a question. Who's great at humbling themselves? <laughs> I've never been very good at it. But the Lord has done some extraordinary things in my life that at the time I thought he was leaving me for dead. That he didn't care. I mean, I read my Bible and shared Jesus and baptized people. And why won't he let me win, succeed in these areas of my life. And some of them, not only did I not succeed, I was deeply and powerfully humbled. Let me ask you a question. If, if, be, if this is true, and of course we, this is why we come together, we believe that it is, and that the humbling process is a season and a time, there are seasons and times where God comes in and humbles you in very unique ways. Are you with me? Then is that a loving act of God? How would it be if you were a prideful man or a prideful woman and the Lord comes in and says, now I'm going to save you. Can he leave you in that state and still say he loves you? Can he leave you as you are or is he going to do a deep penetrating work of humility in your life? Some of you may be thinking, well, maybe I'm going through that right now, physically, a humbling process. Some of you know I had physical, some physical issues with this foot. i got to be honest with you. I was, I'm, I'm athletic, and we eat right, and rah, 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 and then I was kind of like this for, the, for, for all the last 12 years. And I'm like, Lord, you, you can heal this. Why don't you heal this? And then I think, wait a minute. He who humbles himself, I wasn't great at humbling myself, never have been. But the Lord lovingly comes in and puts circumstances in my life that humbles me. I believe that. Ah, oh, you Christians, you have your cake and eat it too. Come on, you can't believe all that. I believe it all. I trust God is good. First John chapter 4, God is love. 
So you want to tell me, you want, you want me to tell you the story of one of my most humbling experiences I've ever had in the history of my life? Now, if you really love me, you'd say, oh, no, no, keep that private, keep that private. So uh, Laura and I had, when we first got married, I mean, I see Jeff go over here, and so we've got some other, got a lot of the tour guys coming in, and I always aspired to be a PJ tour guy, but I never was. So I probably played in my whole career maybe 25 tour events, played one major, mostly, mostly, and I say mostly, mostly very unsuccessfully, okay? So I was, sometimes when I had a little tiny pond, I could be kind of a medium to larger size fish, depending on the size of the pond. But when I got in the real pond, like the international pond or the kind of thing like that, I was a guppy. <laughs> but I got in. So I've had a long-running relationship with BMW for a bunch of years, and some of that is because I used to have be very good friends with the head of BMW, a guy named Dr. Wolfgang Reitzler, who's no longer working for BMW. But we'd go over there, and he'd give me a sponsor's exemption to play in the BMW in Munich every year, even though I didn't deserve it. Right? I mean, I, there's no reason other than I was just kind of his friend, and he liked it. And he'd come over, I'd play in the, the pro-ams and this kind of thing, and, but the VIP pro-ams, but not the, the pro-am, not with the Sevies and the Bernard Longers and those kind of guys that these guys play with. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't ever get to play with those guys, but I'd, I'd go over there, and I'd kind of, you know, I'd hold my own a little bit and make a few cuts, but anyway. So, uh, but boy, was I a prideful, and I still struggle with pride, but I was prideful, and then I got to do the, I got to actually do the commercial for the launch of the 5. We filmed all day, and I was actually on the commercial for the BMW launch of the 5 Series and all this kind of stuff, and I can tell you, when you're in your mid-20s, and you're flying around on private jets, and you're doing this and that and all that, you know, it's just, your chest is puffed out, and you think you're somebody, and you know, and the Lord loved me too much to allow me to stay in that state. And by the way, I don't think I'm finished with this process. Can I just tell you that? So I got over there, and uh, it was coming down the stretch here, and um, I got a call, and he said, I want, we had a guy uh, withdraw. They had their, basically their top 30 on the order of merit that would play on their Wednesday Pro-Am. They, didn't, they had to have a smaller Pro-Am over there in this particular event. And the tournament director called me and said, Wolfgang wants you to play in that. And I said, I don't want to play in that. I mean, they're expecting to draw, you know, Seve or this or Patrick Harrington or whatever. They want a major winner. They want somebody they know. Colin Montgomery, anybody, or the other Americans that would go over there and Paul, Paul Azinger. They want to play with those guys. They don't want to play with some guy. Who? Jeffrey Cranford? Who is that? So anyway, um, I just uh, I said, no, please, don't. I don't want to play in that. I don't want to play in that. No, okay, he says, it's a done deal. You're playing in this deal. The pairings party's tonight. And I said, I don't want to go to the pairings party. I don't want to have to meet the guys I'm playing with to get the worst draw in the whole field, you know, some guy they don't know. I mean, that's just the way I felt about it. Maybe I shouldn't have, but that's the way I felt about it, which was also, by the way, based in pride. So uh, anyway, they, they paired and they all this kind of thing, the pairing party. And, and then the next morning, I got a call from one of my friends over there. He goes, I can't believe it. Have you heard? It's all over the papers. I said, what, what, what? Do you know who you got paired with tomorrow? And I said, no. He said, Franz Beckenbauer. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As, like many of you Americans, like, what, what was my response? Who is Franz Beckenbauer? <laughs> Franz Beckenbauer was, they called him the emperor, the king. Like Arnold Palmer, kind of thing. he was the, the greatest German soccer player of all time, had gone on to coach two World Cups. 
I mean, he was, and my guy said, he was, first of all, a long pause, like, you have to be kidding me. You don't know who Franz Beckenbauer is? You, you Americans, you're so stupid. I mean, just couldn't believe that I was so stupid to not know who Franz Beckenbauer was. This is Joe Montana, Michael Jordan, and Magic Johnson all rolled up into one guy. This is everybody. This is, this is the man. And I said, well, okay. So um, we were down on the range, and, and uh, David Faraday was teeing off, I remember, up in front of me when he was still playing. And there's a couple of guys, and I just, I remember this is just, so many people there around the first tee. And I'm thinking, who is teeing off up there? I thought Seve was later and Bernard Longer, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what. And there's cameras and photography and just everything everywhere. And, uh, and I, was, I was going, I, I said, we got to go see who's up there. I want to see who's up there. You know, I was kind of like a spectator. And I couldn't find anybody. I mean, it was, you know, there's some guys, but nothing that would, you know, justify this kind of a presence of people. So we finally got up there, and they didn't leave when I got up there. And it was all for Franz Beckenbauer. <laughs> they all were there. The, the European press was there to see Franz Beckenbauer tee off. And then I started to get nervous. So <laughs> first hole is down, down a hill and a dog leg left. And I had always, this is back in the day when you hit one irons. It hit a one iron down there in this par five. It just tight. Bavarian forest, just really tight like this, and it goes down and dog legs to the left. And I was like, oh, Lord. And, I, and then all of a sudden I said, if I tee a one iron, I'm going to tee it about that high. I might miss the ball. I'm getting more and more nervous as we go along here. And then I saw one of the guys in front of me, I think it was Faraday, hit tee off with a driver, and the wind was shifting a little bit. I said, I probably need to hit a driver because I just want to make sure I get it airborne. So I'll tee it up a little bit higher. And so I took my driver and took it over the corner, and somehow I got it airborne and ripped it right over the corner. And I expected a, a, an amazing applause and a roar from the crowd. And they were just trying to get to Franz Beckenbauer, who was two tees down. They couldn't care less where I hit it. So we got down there, and I was looking for my ball, and we went down, and, and, uh, and the whole throng followed us. And I could see the lights on the BBC. I knew we were, being co- we were going to be covered all day because of Franz Beckenbauer. Now, they may not cover me at all, but I was going to be. And so we, te- and we get down there, and I'm looking for my ball. And I'm like, well, evidently, I was kind of pumped up and hit it over the corner. I hit it over the corner and then through the fairway and into the forest. <laughs> well, now what do you do? You've got what feels like 10,000 people following you down the thing, and a lot of them are media inside the ropes to follow and we're looking for my ball for five minutes and now I got to climb all the way back up the mountain and tee off again now I am because I am an, a rookie at playing in these kind of deals you just no card that's what you do but no I'm just so I go down the tournament director comes down there he pop, pulls in there he get, get in the car get, takes me up there and uh and one of the European Ryder Cup guys had already teed up and he was like this and I got back up there, and they'd been waiting now for look for this ball and all the other circus that was going on down there. And he went down like this. He's like, <laughs> and he reached down. He un he depegged his ball, and I teed off. I went as fast as I could. Anyway, it was horrible. <laughs> on the 11th green, I'm not kidding you. I was I stood over a putt on a par three for a birdie. I had about a 15 foot putt, and I didn't have any bird, birdie putts that day. And I looked back down, I looked back up, and a, and a photographer had come out onto the green and set up a tripod in my line as I was putting to take a picture of Franz and his bogey putt. I'm, that's, I'm not exaggerating. 
So when we finally finished the round, and I bogey, I shot 81 or 82. Nobody in a pro-am would post that except for the stupid rookie American pro. So we come up over the deal. I was like, my caddy, I said, we have to get, I got to go hit a few balls. It's late at night. I just, I got to get a good feeling. I got to tee off at like 7.30 tomorrow morning. We get out there and I come over the deal and I look and there's Wolfgang. And I want to turn around and go the other way. You know, I'm so ashamed. And he goes, Jeffrey, 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 come here. How did you play? How did you play? I said, I shot 82. He said, I beat you, I beat you, I beat you, I beat you. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not a true story, true story. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How did you shoot 82? I said, well, I parred the last hole. That's how I shot 82. So uh, now I said, we just got to get out of here. And I was, Laura was with me. We just have to get out of here. And she goes, you have to go to this pro-am dinner. This, this story gets worse. You can imagine. That was the good part of the story. It just starts going here and here, and I can feel every bit of pride in my body shrinking to the next, to the next level. And uh, so we got in there, and, and Wolfgang gets up there. And again, these are guys I had just so admired, you know, the guys you wanted to play, you know, Sevies and all these guys, you know. And, and they're, they're VIPs and all the, Peter, uh, the main guys around Europe, and this, you're in this tent and this thing, and... And I'm sitting with Franz Beckenbauer, and, and he was unimpressed with me and my game, I'm sure. He was nice. He was very nice, by the way. And uh, all of a sudden, Wolfgang, and he's speaking in German, and I can't understand. I'm just trying to tap my foot. It's the second he finishes, I'm out of here. And I hear him say, blah, 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 Franz Beckenbauer. And everybody stands, and everybody, you know, just Franz is in our midst, and Franz gets up, and he bows, and this and that. And then Franz Beckenbauer, Franz Beckenbauer, blah, 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 Jeff Cranford. Jeff Cranford, and I, and I woke up, I was, and I punched the guy next to me, and it, people are laughing uproariously. I mean, laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing, and I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on? What story is he telling? And I'm punching the guy next to him, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is too funny, i got to listen. <laughs> He's talking about Franz Beckenbauer, he says, Jeff Cranford, why do I come into the conversation? I'm the last person that's to come into the conversation, and they're passing out the sheets of the scores of the pros, and you know, you had 68, 67. 82, Jeff, USA, you know, and I'm just ashamed and belittled. And, and I finally asked him, and they told me that what he'd said was that my friend had called Wolfgang and told him the story. You're paired with Franz Beckenbauer. And the American said, who's Franz Beckenbauer? <laughs> and I looked down the table at Franz Beckenbauer, and he's just, Americans, Americans. I grab my wife. I, we go. We, we're up on a mountain. We got to drive down the thing. I sit in the back of the van. This day is finally at a close. Lord, the day is over. Thank you that this day is over. And I sit down. And I'll be honest, I don't know that I was being that nice to God. And, uh, and I sit down the back of this deal. I said, just. And Laura was like, honey, it's a. And these two guys get in the get in the van to get, be taken back down to where our cars parked late at night. And they get in. I'm sitting there just quiet. Let's just be quiet. Two guys are sitting there, and they have a sheet. And one guy looks at the other. Jeff Cranford, 82. Ah! <laughs> I said, I'm not. I can't. You can't make up that story. You cannot make up that story. So are there places in your life? Let me read this again. Whoever then humbles himself as a child. Look, we, especially in this valley, this valley is a place of great pride. 
We, it, we can't eradicate this in our own lives, can we? I mean, it takes, it takes a loving God to take us through situations that can conform us to his image. Imagine the creator of the cosmos washing the disciples' feet. Is that your attitude? Is that the Philippians 2 attitude? Have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, took on human flesh and became a bond slave for our sake. I mean, imagine this. Have this attitude. Is that easy to humble yourself? Might there be this unbelievable place of what? Tearing down? Is it bad that God would tear down your pride and your arrogance and all the other things that you hold so precious to your identity? He won't leave you in that state. But if you don't understand times and seasons in your life and the, and the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, you will think that God has abandoned you. You will think that God has abandoned you. I'm going to close with this clip because this is such a part of our culture, even though this man has passed away. And then we're going to get, we're going to get more deeply into this next week. This is key. Let me just tell you. And then we're going to go back eventually and look at some of the biblical patriarchs and apply these various things to their lives to see that as much as God loves some of these biblical patriarchs, there was a time and a season to die and to be uprooted and to be planted and to be sown and to be killed and to kill and to heal. And all these things happened. In every, it, is the, it is the way of the master for you. But if you don't understand it, then you'll fight against it and you won't have peace. You won't have peace. Steve Jobs, many of you know, uh, was known to be a pretty vitriolic leader. Um, was a tough guy, they say, to work for. And some of you may have seen this movie, but it's a clip from the movie Steve Jobs. And it's an interaction he had with Wozniak. And it was a matter of a culture of honor. See, I talk to our staff. We talk about it all the time. The church at the Red Door will be built intentionally. We will not execute perfectly. But we want a culture of honor. We want a culture of honor. And that's what Waz, Waz was uh, asking for, a culture of honor, to honor those that had gone before. And Steve just wouldn't live for it. Do you see these, some of these attitudes in yourself, or are you coming more like Jesus? Let's, let's watch this clip. I'm talking about the Apple II, which is not just a crucial part of this company's history, it is a crucial part of the history of personal computing. For a time. The least you can do if you're going to downsize these people. They're going to live in the biggest houses of anyone on the unemployment line. to market. acknowledge them. Acknowledge them and the Apple II during this launch. This is a new animal. This whole place was built by the Apple II. You were built by the Apple II. As a matter of fact, I was destroyed by the Apple II and its open system so that hackers and hobbyists could build ham radios or something. And then it nearly destroyed Apple when you spent all your money on it and developed a grand total of no new products. The Newton. The little box of garbage. You guys came up with the Newton. You, like, want people to know that. This is a product launch, not a luncheon. And the last thing I want to do is connect the iMac to, to the, the only successful product that this company has ever made. I'm sorry to be blunt, but that happens to be the truth. The Lisa was a failure. The Macintosh was a failure. I don't like talking like this, but I am tired of being Ringo when I know I was John. Everybody loves Ringo. And I'm tired of being patronized by you. You think John became John by winning a raffle, Waz? You think he tricked somebody or hit George Harrison over the head? 
He was John because he was John. He was John because he wrote Ticket to Ride. And I wrote the Apple II. Everybody, like, I want to clear Nobody the Nobody moves. You made a beautiful board, which, by the way, you're willing to give out for free, so don't tell me how you built Apple. If it weren't for me, you'd be the easiest day at Homestead High These School. These people live and die by your praise. So here's your chance. Acknowledge that something good happened that you weren't in the room for. No. Steve, do it. It's right. It's... It's right. Sorry, but no. And let me put it another way. I don't think there's a man who's done more to advance the democratization that comes with personal computing than I have, but you've never had any respect for me. Now, why is that? I'd at least consider the possibility that it's because you've never had any for me. What is going on here? Nothing. Thank you for your time. It's done. She's coming. You came a half inch from putting this company out of business. Now, who do I see about that? I'm letting you keep your job. You get a pass. You know, when people used to ask me what the difference was between me and Steve Jobs, I would say, Steve was the big picture guy, and I like the solid workbench. When people ask me what the difference is now, I say, Steve's an your products are better than you are, brother. That's the idea, brother. And knowing that, that's the difference. It's not binary. You can be decent and gifted at the same time. Look, that's just one example of pride, right? There was pride on both sides here. I don't know what there was. I'm sure that was some license that was taken, but you see that that's in us that's in me and jesus says i want to give you peace and that cannot give you peace those kinds of attitudes you must be converted and become like one of these these children become like one of them isn't it beautiful no it's a humbling long process it's an arduous uprooting of the very identity that we think we possess so just understand the times and the seasons as we go through this and ask the Lord, what season am I in? What are you doing in my life? Let's pray. And as we close, by the way, we've got communion already set up for you upstairs. So please go be part of the communion uh, service after this, before the next service. And we'll have a little bit of a communion song as you're exiting. We went a little long here. My fault. I apologize. But I do pray and I'm going to pray for you. Father, we thank you for church at the red door. Lord, we're so grateful to be a family, a growing family that desires intentionally to serve you and live in the kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We ask for your gracious care as you do this work, this beautiful work in us of making us more like you. Through the times and the seasons, Lord, let us be sensitive. Let us be aware. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you at Church of the Red Door. Have a great week. <laughs>